brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Emma Keeling. And I'm Shanice O'Mara. Today on the podcast, we look at a revolutionary new therapy that could slow down the process of ageing. As you age, you lose 30% of your photoreceptors in your retina. Just, you're not supposed to live until you're 70, right? You're supposed to live until you're about 40 in evolutionary terms. What I dislike about being an older person is you often hear the sentence, now you're of that age, which is a little bit like when somebody pays you a compliment and then says, but, you know bad stuff is coming. Yeah, you know when you've got to an old age as well, when you say that I'm X number of years young. We know that as we grow older, there are big changes in how our bodies behave. Oh, where do I start? Muscles deteriorate, eyesight declines, and we generally slow down. I mean, you know the drill. But you might not know that one of the reasons for this is the decline in the number of mitochondria in our bodies. Mitochondria are the battery packs of the cell. Mitochondria exist in most complex life forms and have their own separate DNA. They contain molecules that release energy in the cell. Cells in the body that require more energy, like the eye or the heart or the brain, have more mitochondria. I went to speak to Glenn Jeffrey from University College London about how he might be changing the way we look at the ageing process. We're really interested in manipulating mitochondria. Uh, mitochondria are, they regulate your metabolism, they tell you when to die, they are incredibly powerful entities, uh, but they also can control the pace of ageing. And what we do is we have found a way of changing what they're doing, uh, but using lights, because they absorb certain lights and it can either improve or undermine their function. All your cells have got mitochondria in them, they've got hundreds of mitochondria, and these mitochondria, exactly like the battery in your car, they've got a charge on them. And as you get older or you get really, really sick, the charge runs down. Uh, and so you've got less energy. They produce the energy for cell function, you've got less energy when the battery runs down. And if we shine long wavelength light on them, it's actually like recharging. It's like putting your toothbrush back on the charger and you can actually generate more energy. So how do you know what wavelengths are right and what are not? Well, it tends to be the longer wavelengths. We've never pinned down, you know, exactly where the limits are, but it looks as if it's deep red through to the infrared that we can't see. Now, the mitochondria respond specifically to that range of wavelengths. They're not particularly interested in some other wavelengths. Those are the wavelengths that actually they either absorb or something that they're talking to absorbs and that switches on the recharge on the battery. The way that they are advancing their knowledge in this field is to test on fruit flies of all things because apparently they've got a very, very similar DNA to us as humans. So am I hearing this correctly? Exposure to this red light can recharge the mitochondria in the cells and slow down ageing because if this is true, I'm going to get the red Christmas lights back out. Well, you know what? It, you're not far off the mark, as in Christmas lights do contain a lot of red light. And it's exactly that kind of wavelength um, of light that is being used to charge up the mitochondria. And it really is that simple as a concept. Now, the actual science suggests that um, there's a lot more to it than just that simple concept. And so more and more research is being done in this area. And admittedly, 
the academics don't know everything yet and they've got still a long way to go. But essentially, when it boils down to the bare essentials of this science, it is light that is helping to charge up a cell that is actually really significant in the process of aging. I mean, there's obviously so much more to this than than wavelengths and fruit flies. No, vision is such a complex and energy-intensive process, and the eye contains a lot of mitochondria. So Professor Jeffrey and his team started to look at the mitochondria specifically in the human eye to see if this red light can help improve people's eyesight. We have learnt, I mean, this is saying what's on the road, right, rather than what's parked now. What is on the road now is last week we found out, in actual fact, that we can give only one minute of light and have a significant effect on someone three hours later. It's titrating it down, getting it down to where is the critical effect happening. So that's that's very clearly something that's worth doing. We're also looking at that break point. You know, our, our original study looked at people above and below 40, but we didn't have a lot of people in the trial. So were, was, our, was our sample perhaps slightly biased? So again, last week we had someone who was in their mid-30s and we got an effect on them. It's, it's, it's a lot of kind of, we know it's an effect, we know it works, we know that there's no particular downside to it, but it's probing it. It's finding its limits as to what has an effect and what doesn't have an effect. But in terms of longer term effects, the study hasn't been going long enough, has it? Well, we, 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 targeted, we targeted initially, um, let's give people three minutes, because we knew three minutes would work if we gave it to them two or three weeks. The animal data is telling us, a com- well, it's not telling us a different, it's telling us what is on our horizon. So I told you that as you age, you lose 30% of your photoreceptors in your retina. Just You're not supposed to live until you're 70, right? You're supposed to live until you're about 40 in evolutionary terms. So we took some aging mice and we gave them the red light for just under a year. And then we went back and we counted their photoreceptors in their eyes. And you are not getting that big wave of cell death in your photoreceptors. Remember, mitochondria, when mitochondria get sick, they can signal to the cell, I've had enough, time for this cell to die. So we've improved the energy, we've got the mitochondria in a better state, and the mitochondria is not telling the cell to die anymore. Now, wouldn't it be great if I could take a whole bunch of 50-year-olds and follow them till they're 70 or 80. Unfortunately, I won't be in the game that long. But that is potentially a really interesting achievement. What they're doing is they're providing people with essentially torches with a filter on it. And these torches are emitting red light of the wavelength of 670 nanometers. And they put together this torch. It's very simple to devise. And it's actually quite interesting because other academics are doing research in similar fields. And some of these technologies are really expensive to manufacture. But Glenn Jeffrey is different in the sense that he has created a technology or a torch that's very cheap to make. And I guess the most important part of his technology is the fact that it has a filter on it to make sure that the light that is being emitted from this torch is of the correct wavelength of 617 nanometers. And so people, subjects of this clinical trial, are being given the torch to take away with them. And for about three weeks, every morning, they are asked to shine the red light 
into their closed eye for about three minutes every day. As a result of their data, they have been adapting their clinical trials to either elongate the amount of light exposure every day or actually shorten the length to see how that impacts the effects. But generally, what they're finding is that by shining this red light into one eye um, over a period of time, it is improving people's eyesight, particularly from the perspective of sharpness of colour. You did speak to one of the volunteers who participated in the trial. How did they describe that experience? Yeah, Zan, she got involved in the trial. And I think the first thing was that it was really easy to uh, apply this technology because, you know, for a few minutes every morning, you have your eye shut and you place this torch onto your eye. And that's really it. I mean, nothing painful. Um, It feels like that feeling when someone opens the curtains after a night's sleep and your eyes are still shut, you know, that kind of exposure to bright light through your eyelids. And um, yeah, I think she really was glad to be involved in the trial because uh, she's kind of in her 40s and she wanted to hold on to her 2020 vision that she had, that she's always enjoyed. And she's noticed that her eyesight has got slightly more fuzzy um, as a result of age and she wanted to try and reverse that and this technology promises to do that and you know she went through the trials she got her results and I'm not gonna spoil it or should I? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us it was positive. (laughs) (laughs) You'd have to watch to find out how she did but her data and her um, participation in the trial was certainly in line with the results that they've already been getting. Mm, Teaser love it all right but how long do you have to use this for so that it's effective I mean is this something that she'd have to shine in her eye every single day for her to keep that that um, you know enhanced vision? Well great question because uh, I think anyone who wants to get involved in this technology doesn't want to have to keep shining a light like this on their eyes for the rest of their lives and because the research is relatively new they are still, Glenn Jeffrey and his team are still trying to exactly pinpoint how long people need to be exposed. Um, what has been changing, as in the variables of this experiment, is that they are trying to establish how long you actually keep the torch on your eye for and for what length of time. But generally, what Glenn Jeffrey has found is that you get a positive effect on your eyes for five days just by a two-minute exposure to red light. The whole subject is so new, but also so rich in terms of the positive effects that they may be able to achieve. I got to speak to evolutionary biologist Professor Nick Lane, who gave us some really profound insights into this process. There's been a change going on over the last few years, over the last decade or so, that historically... Most medical research has taken, if you like, a gene-centric view. And in the nucleus of our cells, we have 20,000 genes. Each one encodes a protein, and the protein has a particular function. And then there's regulation behind all of that as well. 
And we know from the Human Genome Project that, that mutations or different forms of particular genes can increase or decrease your risk of a particular disease. And we tend to look tissue by tissue. This gene is expressed in this tissue, which means it's active in this tissue uh, and not in that one. Um, and so there's been a, a kind of an anatomical approach to how we think about diseases. But there's another way of seeing the question, which is about energy flow over time. It's about, you know, we've, we're not immobile. We don't just sit here and not move. We need to eat, we need to breathe continuously. And, and this is a continuous flowing of energy through all the cells in our body, all of them simultaneously, and they're interacting with all the genes in the different systems. And the way that this energy flow is interacting with the proteins and the genes in different systems, is that's what's changing our risk of disease. And as, the, as, as the, the power packs begin to run down, then the effects when, when genes go wrong begin to magnify, begin to become greater. And one way of addressing not just this particular disease in that tissue, but all diseases in all tissues, if you like, is try and fix the power packs um, and, 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 and revert back to a more youthful phenotype. That, that's an ideal. That's what we'd like to be able to do. Is we're a long way from being able to do it, but that, that's a kind of a, an idea in principle that might be possible. So, Shinny, what's exciting you in science this week? Well, I found a story about whale song. The research is about correlating whale song with data on populations. So mm. bear with me on this. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so usually about eight to 12,000 whales, humpback whales, congregate in the North Pacific around the shallow waters of Hawaiian islands to breed. And since around 2014, there has been research to try and look at humpback whale population numbers because there has been fear that their numbers are declining because of climate change and various other human activity. And they use this unit of measurement called acoustic energy levels, or if you want to get really technical, it's called root mean square sound pressure levels. So the RMS SPL levels are measured using these ecological acoustic recorders. And this is a very dominant sound in the waters around the Hawaiian islands during the time of between December and April. So if you're visiting that area, during the end of the year, sort of beginning of the next year, your the waters are full of this male breeding sound. So they're not they're not seeing how many different voices there. It's actually the, the the volume of energy which tells them how many whales are in that area. Yeah, I mean to get specific, they're actually measuring pressure levels because you know if you want to go into the physics of sound, sound is actually pressure. You know, it's a wavelength. And so they're able to measure this pressure, which could also be seen as energy. And from that, they're able to determine how many whales must have got together to produce this energy level. It's so interesting. And, you know, it's just a very, very different way of collecting research. And, you know, 
Around 2015 to 2016, when there was an El Nino event in the North Pacific, humpback whale numbers definitely did decline. And that coincided with the decline in acoustic energy levels. But I'm pleased to say that numbers have been bouncing back since about 2018. Numbers are on the increase. So yeah, it's just a really lovely little story about how uh, academics are using a very creative way of uh, measuring population numbers of what is really considered to be the flagship species of Hawaii, which are the humpback whales. I mean, tourists usually flock to this area to see these absolutely magnificent whales. And the idea that by measuring how they sing in the water can actually give us an indication of their numbers, it's just really lovely. Yeah, fantastic. It's um, if you, you want to hear lots of male humpback choirs and then you're thinking, yes, the numbers are great. Um, but yeah, have you heard, you've heard whale sound. It's kind of like, I mean, yeah. that's not, that's, I mean, it's not accurate, that's obviously. Good, yeah, that's, that's a good attempt. So how about you, Emma? What have you got? I'm taking you back to dry land, Shinny. So I don't know if this has been the case for you during all the lockdowns, but a lot of people got into baking. I actually made a few banana muffins, which were very good, by the way. Um, and I guess in one of those sort of crazy why not moments, this baking thing inspired a team of tissue engineers at the University of Ottawa to try using bread as a scaffold for growing cells. Now, around the world, groups are working on ways to grow tissues and organs outside the body. And one method is to seed a scaffold with cells. It's a little bit like how you seed the garden. Same sort of thing, but hopefully not as bad as my garden looks. So typically, these scaffolds are made with collagen, but it's really expensive. So instead, the Ottawa team experimented with several plant-based alternatives. And in 2016, they grew human ears using apples as a scaffold. And so they carved them into the shape of an ear and all the living cells were removed and it left a cellulose scaffold and that was seeded with human cells. Now, they're using Irish soda bread, which is reinforced with chemicals to create more cross-links between the bread's fibres. And so this is this is the new thing. They've decided Irish soda bread is the way to go. And they bake it, they remove small portions, they sterilize them by soaking them in alcohol, and then they seed them with various cells. And they've found that several cell types, including skin, muscle, and even bone cells, are able to infiltrate the soda bread scaffolds and proliferate. And further studies are planned to see if these tissues can be safely implanted in animals. Obviously, we need to do that first before we test this on humans. But if that's successful, well, can you imagine? There's going to be so many scientists looking to connect with Irish bakers on LinkedIn. It's going to create a whole new industry. We're all going to be looking for our best Irish soda bread recipes. The idea, the idea that um, initially collagen was the way to go and the fact that it's an expensive... Uh, solution and the idea that soda bread could take its place is something that needs to be explained. You need that that bread's scaffold, so that you because obviously you don't want to sort of um, as they said they're sort of sterilizing them by soaking them in alcohol. So you sort of want to get rid of of the the growing bread cells, so to speak, and and put the the human cells on there. So it's really it's just finding a structure to grow something on. But I guess, I don't know, if you break open bread and you look at the fibres within, I mean, I think visually you need to see it, don't you? 
that's what you need to see. But um, yeah. yeah, it's just it's just finding that that right scaffold that will will, will help um, with the growth. So that's it for another edition of the Razor Podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGT in Europe and type in Razor, or you can go to our brand new YouTube channel and you just have to type in Razor Science Show and we're all there. Until next time, bye.